May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. A personally beloved clergyman of mine, now retired, Father Patrick Bright, longtime rector of All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, used to sign his letters of correspondence with these three words at the end, under the mercy, comma, Father Bright. These three words have stayed with me over a period of years now. In fact, I couldn't tell you the content of any of our letters with any degree of clarity, but I remember those three words, under the mercy. And they return to me under various circumstances, such as the memory of those who perished in the events of 9-11, now over 20 years ago, and especially more recently with the fresh news that we are processing of the departure from this world and arrival into the next of Her Majesty the Queen. Queen Elizabeth II knows the truth of these words more now than ever before, and more than we do as we sit here. As she now approaches the mercy seat of His Majesty, God, Creator of all things, heaven and earth. We pray for this for all people, to come under the mercy of God from queens and kings, to counts, to clergy, to accountants, to common people, all, of, all people at all times in all places everywhere, ultimately and desperately have need to be found under the mercy of God. And I would propose that of all people who have ever walked this earth, it was, in fact, the Apostle Paul who knew this most of all, his need for God's mercy. Unfortunately, it has long been popular and in vogue to dislike and therefore dismiss the Apostle Paul. Many claim he's too rigid and too staunch He's too extreme, and by now he's outdated in his morals. He's harsh, and he's hard, and prideful, and boastful, and to be honest, the list goes on. It's unfortunate because Paul wrote half of the New Testament, which leads me to wonder how serious some of his words are taken. I suspect that some people are inclined to rather than heed his words, hide from them under these critiques. But this is nothing new. 
came about in a new form and fashion in the past couple hundred of years, but this goes all the way back to Paul's very day. He himself personally faced ridicule and criticism in his own day by many multitudes of people, opponents for that matter. And these were both from inside and outside of the church. Gentiles found him to be a disturber of the peace. And as we know, under the authority of the emperor Nero, he was in fact put to death and beheaded. His own people of the flesh condemned him of heresy and blasphemy against God. And as people of the Spirit, fellow brethren, brothers in Christ, Christians, were at times inclined and tempted to see him as replaceable. If you turn to his second letter to the church at Corinth in the 11th chapter, you can read about super apostles who were rising up, claiming to be more credentialed, stronger, better, more able to gather a crowd, and therefore more authoritative than Paul, the apostle. It's hard to imagine, but that's true. To all of this, I would say, if you are inclined to dislike Paul, the Christian apostle, then you would really have disliked him when he was known as Saul of Tarsus, the zealous Pharisee, persecutor of Christians, enemy of Christ, no less. You remember his journey on the road to Damascus in which our risen Lord confronted him in a miraculous encounter, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Many critics of Paul simply do not understand and do not account for the radical transformation that he experienced by God's hand on his life. Literally, we're talking about a man who was steeped in legalism, a religious extremist, a zealot under the law, transformed into a faithful servant of God. As he says here in our first reading, which is where I want to direct our gaze this morning, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus, replacing all that was opposed to Christ. How does this happen? How does a change like this happen in a person's life? How does God take a broken man, sinful, harmful to himself and others, and turn him into a new person, a different person, a new creation. How does that work? Because that's what Paul sets forth for us in his testimony in this passage. Paul tells us in this first lesson that it begins with this word, 
mercy, mercy, under the mercy of God. Let me give us a working definition of mercy. Mercy is God being moved by pity, withholds from us his perfect execution, perfect execution of justice and punishment, which we deserve due to our sins. It's not easy to stomach, but it's merely, simply, accurately, truly a reflection of the words that we will take upon our own lips as we confess our sins together momentarily, in which we acknowledge the fact that our sins both provoke God to wrath and indignation. And then we turn and appeal to God to have mercy. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O most merciful Savior. Mercy is always undeserved and unmerited. If it weren't, it wouldn't be mercy. This is Paul to the T. Paul is a prime example, the example, of God pouring forth mercy on a person's life. Notice what he says. I once blasphemed God with my speech. I persecuted people in action, literally going to drag people back to be persecuted. And in the RSV translation, I insulted him, which in the Greek really carries a stronger sense of violence and hatred. We're talking all the way down to the heart level that he was filled with violence and hate. So through and through, in word, in deed, in thoughts, in heart, he was broken, fallen, desperate. Does this sound like someone close to God or worthy of God's mercy? No. No on all accounts. And yet, Paul boldly declares here, and yet, I received mercy. Why? Why did God show Paul mercy when he didn't deserve it? Well, the short answer is because God is merciful. In his nature, in his character, he is merciful. I did a brief word search for mercy throughout Scripture and came away convinced that you'd have a pretty good chance of randomly opening the Bible and landing on a page in which God's mercy is displayed for us, whether in word or deed. Some of these verses are very powerful and would be helpful to us to, be, to remember the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness. That's from Exodus. From the Psalms, 
all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. From the prophet Micah, who is a God like you? You do not retain your anger forever because you delight in mercy. From the New Testament, Ephesians, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Let us therefore says Hebrews, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It would take the time of a whole sermon to read all the verses about God's mercy, but this is who he is. It raises a further question, why does God show mercy beyond the fact of him being merciful in nature? What does he gain from this? Why does he do it? No one has to show mercy. We all know what it feels like not to want to show mercy to someone. So why does God? Because in fact, he does gain something when he shows mercy. For one, our salvation. Notice what Paul says. Here is a true saying deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world not to give us good teachings, not to motivate us with inspiration, but to save sinners. And as Paul says, of whom I am the foremost, it is for our salvation. By grace, God gives a Savior, and by his mercy, he allows us time to turn and receive his Savior. So that's the one thing he gains, is our salvation. Secondly, the reason God shows mercy on people's lives is to display his character, to show the world who he is. Paul says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So God chose Paul as a unique vessel in all of his fallenness and brokenness and hatred and hopelessness, chose him to be a vessel for mercy so that everyone who came after him would look back on Paul and say, well, look at the mercy God had on Paul. And look what it did to his life. Through Paul, we learn who God is. And this is not accidental. God planned it this way. In his sovereign eternal will determined that Paul would serve this purpose. So that when we come before God and begin to ask the questions with hesitation, can God accept me? 
Is his mercy big enough, great enough for me? We can conclude, yes. Yes, it is. Being a priest out in public, sometimes I'm approached by various people who make comments about church, mostly having to do with why they're not in church. And one of them sounds like this. Yeah, I'm afraid to set foot in church, I might burn up. That's a kind of a common, funny quip that people use. Somehow the message of mercy has not made it through. If there is any fire to be had here, at this time, on this day, for us as a people, may it be the fire of the Holy Spirit that lights us through the mercy and grace of God that is limitless. May we come to know that his mercy is so great to cover all of our sins. May we be encouraged not to hide in shame, but to come forward to bring ourselves under the mercy. You see, it begins and it ends in mercy. And this is what leads anyone to be able to sincerely, in spirit and truth, worship God in words such as this, as Paul closes, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Those are the words uttered out of a man who knows the mercy of God. Amen.